your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Our Lord, we covet the experience just described. We covet this experience for ourselves, that we might be embraced fully by you and shepherd it into the fullness of the glory and blessing of your kingdom. That is the promise you've made to us. Here it is in writing, and every jot and tittle, every smallest letter and part of a letter will be fulfilled. We are asking that you will shepherd us into your presence that we will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit today as he speaks from his word, as we are speaking and building one another up, as we are encouraging each other. May we be all God's spokesman, your spokesman, in building one another up and that your truth would be at the core of every sentence. We ask for your glory to be the ultimate outcome of today's gathering. We ask this of you. Good Shepherd Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 2. And I love the beautiful way in which the Lord is shepherding this congregation in our understanding uh, exactly what Brandon was addressing earlier from the Westminster Confession, exactly, that is exactly, uh, in fact, it was a few weeks ago that 
Brandon, when getting, okay, we need, we, I would like to do this, and I would like to do the systematic theology, and I suggested the Westminster Confession, and I'm glad I did, and it's a wonderful place to go, but maybe we ought to be doing the Roman Confession, <laughs> because what Paul is laying out is exactly the same thing, and we're going to be looking at that part of Romans in which he lays out the diagnosis for us. What is the problem that he's going to cure? And exactly what Brandon has already laid out for us that is voiced in the Westminster Confession is, folks, we are not our own problem solver. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are not only, we're dead in two senses, we have a problem we cannot solve. We stand before the holy God as sinful, wicked people, and we can't fix that. We can't fix that. And folks, we don't even want to fix that Left to ourselves, the wicked will always embrace their wickedness and never, ever, ever repent. We're going to be getting to this place in Romans. It is a God pours out repentance. The one who brings us into the kingdom is the good shepherd. Don't let that discourage you. In fact, that should encourage you that your God is much, 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 much to have mercy on you and have grace poured out on you, to pour that out, to pour out that spirit of repentance. And he makes it, he gives you that heart to cry out to him. That is the first in line of the gifts he gives us is that spirit of repentance. We cry out to you. We are coming alive, crying out to him in Lord, I need what only you can give. I need what only you can give. I need what only you can give. And God says, yes. And I'm more eager to give it to you than you were to ask. And the entire process is of him. And we can be so grateful because whatever little part of that process might have been up to us, the whole thing collapses. It is all of God. It is all of God. He is the resurrection God. In Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is laying out the problem that only God can solve, and he's addressing two cultural groups, two, two ethnic groups, the Gentiles, as he says in the opening chat part of Rome, uh, Gentiles, the, both the Greeks and the barbarians. <laughs> those who are the cultured and the uncultured, but also the Jews. And, of course, the par excellence Jews in the Jewish culture, in their, in their ethnic, they typically elevated, most of all, the Pharisaical outlook mindset approach, which is 
we are legalists. We, are, we will keep the law. We will please the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by our law-keeping. By our law-keeping. He will be so pleased. And in fact, what does God say? All of your righteousnesses, the best that you can boast of, the best that you can boast of is as filthy rags. And folks, that's a very polite translation. I won't go any further than that. That's a very polite translation. Chapter 2 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. You are all hypocrites. You are all hypocrites. What does Jesus say? If you look on a woman to lust for her, it's as if you committed adultery with her already. Your mindset, God sees it. And that's your, you are what your mindset says you are. You may not have actually stolen from someone, but coveting their stuff is the same thing. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's life, wife, stuff, reputation. No. And we all break that commandment. What's the point of advertising? <laughs> it's to incite us to covetousness. And that's part of our culture. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice, practice, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God doesn't have to make anything up. He doesn't have to exaggerate. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and doing the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Well, I didn't do it openly. I only did it. No. Ladies and gentlemen, one of God's kindnesses to us, because I think it would totally wreck us, is if we understood what unrestrained, undiluted holiness looked like. We would all just throw in the towel. No. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. You who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And practicing it in your mind and heart is the same as if you've, as if you've done it on the outside. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, I didn't do it openly, and I didn't get caught. And da -da -da. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? God is rich in goodness. He is the good God. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't often tell people, hey, you need to go study Hinduism. You need to study all these pagan. You need to study the Allah of Islam. Let me tell you, the number one distinction, it's not by far, not the only one, 
the God who discloses himself to us through his word, through the prophets, through his son, through the apostles, is a God who's good. In fact, that's where we get the English word God. He is the good God. The world knows no good God or goddesses except this one who is the creator God. He is the true God of all things. He is good. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance? He is enduring with you. He is restraining himself. Long-suffering, patience. He's patient with you. not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. (sighs) Lord, you've been holding your goodness. You've been holding your mercy. You've been holding your grace out to me for so long, so long, so long. We just had a testimony from a brother here about his sister and her husband and how they Delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. They're, they're responding to the God of mercy, and now they're responding. But the, that God was enduring with them. He was being patient with them. They were lost sheep, and he went out, and he found them, and he's bringing them back. He's bringing them back. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? When you authentically repent, turning to this God, what incites you? This is the God who is good. I can turn to him, I can run to him, and he will welcome me. He is a good God. He is a merciful God. He is a God who purposes to bless me, to unload heaven's bank on me. This is a God who wants to bless us. The only, the the restraint is simply he's a good parent. (laughs) He doesn't want to spoil. But he is a God of goodness. But in accordance, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness, and your impenitent heart, you treasure up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And I know I've cited this passage over and over and over again. I'm going to keep doing it to get used to it. Zechariah chapter 12. Jesus in Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the world there to annihilate the Jewish people there. Thus says the Lord, he rip opens, rips open the heavens, he come out, comes out, and they, the Jews in Jerusalem, will look on me whom they pierced. And they, there's only one person in all of human history that can be. That's Jesus of Nazareth. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And they will look, and I, will, and I the Lord, will pour out on them a spirit of grace and of supplication. I will enable them. Grace and of crying out, and they will mourn. Chapter 13, verse 1, And I will open for them a fountain of cleansing, and one-third of them will repent. They all see the same 
thing. The one whom they pierce is there to redeem them, to rescue them. And two-thirds of them say no. They're about to be annihilated, and they say no. They're no different from us, except that that spirit of repentance is poured out on us, and our spirit is made alive. It is a resurrection. Just as Brandon was pointing out, it is a resurrection event. And we can be so grateful that it ultimately depends on him because he is the God of mercy, grace, unrestrained love. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render (coughs) thee... each one according to his deeds. Why? Because that's what you demand. Hey, God, you can judge me based on my works. I'll take that. Bad choice. Bad choice. Who are rendered to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, By the way, they are only doing that because they're incited by God to do it. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, and as I pointed out before, the gospel is a gift to be received. It is also a command to be obeyed. God commands all men, all human beings everywhere to repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you refuse to repent, you are disobeying God. It is a promise to be believed. It is a gift to be received, but it is also a command to be obeyed. He will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Why does he put why does he say that? Because the people who have had the most, and he's going to emphasize this later in the text, the people who have had the most exposure to the divine revelation are the ethnically Jewish people, especially in Paul's day. They were the ones that that went to synagogue. They were the ones that heard the Scripture read, that they've had more exposure typically as an ethnic group than anybody else. So they have more responsibility to the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. And the first good work is obeying God to receive, to repent and receive the gospel. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. God does not have an ethnic preference. Let me ask you a simple question. When Abraham, when it says in 
uh, Genesis 15, and Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Was Abraham a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. He doesn't receive the ritual of circumcision till chapter 17, and that's the beginning of the Jewish distinction. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Why? The law is already written on our hearts. You read the Ten Commandments, is there any surprise there? No. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be just. You shall worship the Lord your God. If you're disobeying him, if you're refusing to repent, you're not worshiping the Lord your God. For not the hearer of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, why? Because they're written on everyone's heart. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. They know what the truth is. What's the oldest book in our Bible? The oldest book in our Bible is Job who was at least two generations before Abraham, and Job knew the holy God. He had a vital relationship with the holy God, so much so that when Lucifer shows up in heaven, God's bragging about Job, (laughs) this wonderful servant of his, who later says, I know that my Redeemer lives and will stand on the earth, and though after my flesh worms destroy this body, serve from within my own flesh, I will see God. That's gospel truth a couple generations before Abraham. And he was a Gentile, but he knew the truth. They had that revelation. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified." For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have that written in stone. It's not in their their chest at home. By nature, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You don't keep secrets from God. When guilt strikes you for something you said, did, thought, nobody else knows about it, God knows about it. And when you stand before him, if you have not welcomed the redeeming work of Christ, you will have to answer for that. Indeed, you are called a Jew. So now he's moving on from humanity in general to the Jews and specifically that ethnic group. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. What was the Pharisaical addiction? Ah, yes, we are the favored sons of Abraham, and we have the law, and we have our 
sleeve lengths exactly right, the tilt of our skull caps exactly right, and we do all these things. We, they added a whole lot of laws just so they could separate themselves even from those peasant Jews. And what's God doing? Oh, please stop it. No, 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 no. Human righteousness stinks. Ah. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Ouch. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? In the temple in Jerusalem, why was it called a den of thieves? Because it was. If you were a Jew or a Gentile, it didn't matter. When you went to the temple, you couldn't present an offering, a financial offering, in just any coinage. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to use the temple currency. And so you would bring whatever form of money you had, you'd bring it in there, and they would do an, they would exchange your money for the temple currency at a ridiculously horrible exchange rate. And then you could make your offering in the temple. And God is hovering over this just I can't think of an adequate word. The stench of their religiosity. Oh, you have to have the clean temple currency. No, they were robbing the people who had come to worship. They were robbing them. And the Jewish leadership, the high priests, were living on the difference. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? <coughs> you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And then he quotes the Hebrew Scriptures, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Gentiles are disregarding your God because they see your hypocritical behavior. Why should the Gentiles be attracted to worship in the temple of God when it is run by criminals? As I pointed out before, the sect of the Essenes out by the Dead Sea, which started about 200 years before the birth of Christ, they were the Essenes were Jews who basically had said, we're done with the temple worship. We're done with that den of thieves. That's why that Essene sect existed out there. That's how long it had been a den of thieves before Jesus even cleansed it. 
For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. The law is you either got it all or you ain't got any. If you keep the law, but if you were a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law, the righteous requirements of the law, as Abraham, that Gentile who believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, he had the law written on his heart. 400 years plus, well, probably more like 500 years before they received the law on Mount Sinai. Is Abraham keeping the law to the best of his own? Yes. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? God's looking on the heart. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even in with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Do you really want Job to be your judge? Do you want your righteousness to be compared with the righteousness of Job, which God bragged about? I don't think so. I don't think so. But, of course, Job's the righteousness that really gave him standing with God was the righteousness of his Redeemer. I understand that. But he also was a man of integrity, so much so that he was on what he was on the outside really was what he was on the inside. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Hey, I, but I've got the book, Lord, and I've got the ritual. And yeah, right. Well, this guy who actually does what the book says, <laughs> uh, he will be your judge. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor the is a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and, the, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Praise from God. We stand or fall before our God, the truly holy, righteous God, who loved us so much that he sent a Redeemer to pay sin's penalty for us so that he could welcome us. Why is Paul writing this? Why is he going to such detail? Because he's trying to incite an understanding and create repentance as the Holy Spirit takes this message and it is read to the Jewish, ethnically Jewish people and the Gentile people. They're I've got no hope. I've got no hope left to myself. I've got no hope left. And what is Paul driving? He's going to come. Oh, but you're not left to yourself. But you better know what your need is or you won't take advantage of the cure when you understand it. They will look on him whom they pierced and two-thirds will not accept the deliverance he offers them freely. So hard will their hearts be. Folks, they're no different from us. If you have an authentic relationship with God, it's because you 
were out there, that knucklehead sheep, and the shepherd found you and threw you on his shoulders and brought you home. We can be so grateful that's the reality. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way. There is an advantage. What is it? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They've got this book. They've got the Hebrew prophets. They've got this revelation that is a wonderful gifting to them. Much in every way, chiefly because to them was, were commu- committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? That doesn't mean the gift wasn't adequate and wonderful. What if some of them did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified, that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. God is telling those who would accuse... Do people find fault with God? People find fault with God all the time. They find fault with God all the time. And then if God's mercy is great to them where he is pursuing them, they understand, I found fault with the wrong person. The fault was not with God. The fault was, as Brandon mentioned earlier, we're talking about Adam. It's the original, it's the sin that dwells in us that's the problem. It's the fallen world that we live in that is the problem. Why is it a fallen world? Because our forefathers in Adam all die. Thankfully, we can add to that, as the apostle does, in Christ all shall be made alive. We have a Redeemer, we have a resurrection God who draws us out of that place of death that Adam placed us into. as it is written, that you, Lord, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. People make false accusations against God, and then he rebukes them. He corrects them. But if our, this is, this is what Paul's getting into, here's a, here's a little bit of weirdness, but this is how weird the human mind is. <laughs> But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Hey, you know what? I'm actually helping God out by my sinful behavior because he looks so good in comparison to me. Why, you're welcome, God. What? (laughs) That's how insane humanity is, including me, left to myself. Yes, I I hope I'm not messing with you. I have said dumb stuff in my life, okay? I hope that doesn't uh, totally follow up your understanding of me, but I, and my wife can testify to, don't do that. (laughs) But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Who inflicts, hey, God, I really was doing you a favor. Don't you spank me. Don't pour out your wrath on me. I speak as a man. Now, if I was paraphrasing Romans at this point, I think I would put in that parentheses, 
I speak as a knucklehead? (laughs) Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? You're not doing God any favors with your sinfulness. For how would God then judge the world? No. You carry you carry the burden, the guilt of your sin unless he cleanses you of it. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? Hey, Lord, I'm doing you a favor. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, there's these lies going on in the Jewish community about Paul and the other apostles. You know, they're talking about this God of mercy and grace. Hey, isn't that minimizing the reality of sin? And they're actually saying, hey, yeah, go ahead, whatever you do, God can forgive it. So that's not what they're saying. Can God forgive it? Yes, but they're not saying, oh, yes, this is God of such great grace and mercy that you can just go ahead and sin right now. No, they're not saying that. They're not promoting sinful behavior. And why not say, let us do evil, the good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? I have just been renouncing those who have been lying about me and my message and that of the other apostles drawing comparison between those who have authentically repented and received redemption and those who have not, are we better than they? Not at all. A sinner is a sinner is a sinner is a sinner. The only distinction that can be made between them is the sinners who have been forgiven and the sinners who have not. But sinners are still sinners are still sinners. Are we better than they, even my false accusers? Am I a better man than they, them? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We all have the same problem as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Left to ourselves, we don't pursue God. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us to ourselves. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. You... In the book of Leviticus, what, if you touch a carcass, you become unclean. Their throat is an open tomb. Every word they say defiles the hearers. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. That's the fruit of their doings. Destruction, misery are in their ways, 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not respect God as he really is. Whether Jew or Gentile, left to ourselves, that's the reality. Now we know that whatever the law says, and he's just verses 10 through 18 here, he's been quoting scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Are you hearing me, Jewish people? That every mouth may be stopped, even those who claim a special relationship with God and claim for them this great righteousness. No, every mouth will be stopped. Left to yourself, you have no better standing than the guilty Gentile. Every mouth will be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, whether written on stone or written in the heart, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified have a standing of righteousness in his sight before God, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law was to be a diagnostic tool telling us what the problem was. It's not a solution. It's a diagnosis. And the solution also found in the Hebrew Scriptures, testified to in the Hebrew Scriptures as well as in the New Testament, is the rework of the Redeemer. We go to that Dr. Jesus, the great physician, Jesus, for the cure. Our Father, we are so grateful. We've gone through this lengthy description of the problem that every human being, every descendant of Adam and Eve have but you are the redeeming God. We've gone through this description, this diagnosis of our problem, but what awaits us has already been hinted at in Romans. What awaits us is that truth of your gifting us with the work of your Son, with the person of your Son, who bore sin's penalty for us to give you perfect freedom, perfect freedom, to forgive us, to eagerly, happily forgive us. Our Father, we are asking that you will enable us to more deeply love and worship you as you reminded us much of what we've said here today, if not all of it, we already knew, but you reminded of us, and Lord, this is the core of our relationship with you. This is the problem you solved. And it is a wonderful place for us to pitch our tent and to know we are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. We've been justified by you. We are asking that you will enable us to dwell in this, the glory and joy of knowing this, but also to communicate it to someone else this week. We are asking that you would kick open a door of opportunity for us to speak gospel truth to someone else whom you are drawing. 
We ask this of you, that you would favor us in this way. In your name, Good Shepherd Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.